Our scripture passage this morning comes from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. This is a continuation of uh, last week's sermon. But before we turn to the Lord's word, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so too does your word go out from your mouth and shall not return to you empty. We pray, therefore, that your word would go forth in power this day and would accomplish that for which you purpose it. So come, Holy Spirit, and make our hearts and minds tender and receptive to your word. Succeed this day in building up your church. Succeed in bringing new life where there is death, healing where there is brokenness, and comfort where there is distress. For we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us, From our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you recall from last week, we are dealing with a passage about Paul's specific instructions about what it looks like to love one another. He's bringing these general exhortations to love one another from the previous two chapters, and he's applying them to a real-life situation that is occurring in the church in Rome. 
So as we noted last week, the particular context in which these instructions are being given is dealing with a division in the church that has occurred due to a difference in opinion and in conviction about matters of food and the observance of holy days. This rift in the church has primarily occurred between those who come from a Jewish background and those who come from a Gentile background. And it seems as though, in general, the Jewish Christians are continuing in their commitment to Jewish regulations regarding diet and days. And so we said last week, it does not appear that they are doing so with a belief that these things will provide for or add to their justification, their right standing before God. Otherwise, I think we can reasonably assume that Paul, based on his reaction in other places in Romans and in his other letters, would not have encouraged a welcoming of these individuals and a tolerance of their beliefs into the community. But Paul does refer to them as weak Christians, not because they were legalists or had moral failings, but because they were not standing firm in the freedom that had been given to them in Christ Jesus. As we said last week, they had scruples. They had doubts about the morality regarding this, the dietary laws and the Jewish observances. And we see in this passage this morning in verses 14 and 20 that Paul acknowledges their beliefs concerning these things to be erroneous. On the other side of this dispute and division are the Gentile Christians who are living in their Christian freedom, understanding that those who are in Christ are not bound to dietary laws or certain Jewish holy days. And so we have a division that has arisen in the church between these two groups, which seems to be seriously disrupting the fellowship of believers. So let's be clear from the get-go this morning. This issue is not about eating or abstaining from eating. It's not about observing special holidays or abstaining from observing them. The issue is concerning the disruption of the fellowship. It is the unity, or as it were, the disunity of the body of Christ. Let's think about this issue for a moment. Scripture lifts up the importance of the unity of the body of Christ. These are the very words of our Lord Jesus in John 17. This is his prayer, that those who believe in him may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe in you, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays for the unity of the church in order that the world may see and know that Jesus is Lord And that they may see and know the reality of God's love. The church's unity demonstrates the very reality of who God is and who we are as God's own people. The church's unity demonstrates the very reality of who God is and who we are as God's own people. 
And the early church did not miss the importance of this unity among the body of believers. Paul encourages unity. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul addresses that we are the body of Christ and that the purpose of diversity in the body in terms of gifts is meant to actually build up the unity of the body. Also in Ephesians 2 where Paul says that God has, quote, reconciled us both, meaning the Jews and the Gentiles, to himself in one body through the cross. And therefore, they have become, quote, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are one body. We are one household. We are one temple. Paul will then go on to talk more extensively about the importance of unity in the body of Christ in chapter 4 of Ephesians. There is one body in one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And listen to what he says. And he, Jesus Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. That is you, the church, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. But listen, Paul isn't the only one who addresses this issue of unity. Titus tells us to avoid the person who stirs up division in the church. He states after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Those are strong words. The author of Hebrews is concerned about church unity and the fellowship of the saints. He tells us that we shouldn't neglect meeting together. Peter tells us to have a unity of mind and to love each other earnestly, to be humble, to show hospitality to one another. James, too, is concerned about unity. He's concerned about issues like quarrels and divisions and favoritism in the church. John is concerned about unity. He tells the church to love each other, not just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jude is concerned about unity. He warns of those who, quote, cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is something that we do together. You see the pattern here again and again and again. The unity of the body of Christ is stressed in Scripture. Unity is the context of Romans 14. And the question is, in light of the importance of the unity of the body, how does the church handle differences of opinion over non-essential issues in love? How does the church work through these differences in a way that honors and glorifies 
glorifies God, builds his kingdom, and demonstrates the power and the greatness of this kingdom through self-sacrificial love of one another. So again, don't think we're talking merely about food here. We're talking about something far greater. Now, I might be wrong, but it is my personal feeling that this whole concept that Paul presents here is probably very foreign to us. It's very countercultural. American Christianity has in many ways unthinkingly, unthinkingly welcomed in a rugged individualism of the world, of the culture around us. There is, for the, for the most part, no rugged individualism in Scripture, though. It's not to say that you are, aren't alone in your responsibility of your sin. That you alone won't stand before God's judgment seat. That you alone aren't responsible for your response to the gospel for repenting and turning to Jesus and placing your trust in his all-sufficient sacrifice. But more often than not, the you in scripture is really a y'all. Too often what the Bible teaches about the unity of the church, though, is ignored or downplayed. Likewise, I believe that a dangerous idea about freedom and tolerance in American culture also unthinkingly gets welcomed into the church. It's an attitude that people can do as they like, that no one should question one another, and that unity is attained by being uncritically tolerant of each other's opinions and lifestyles, even to the point of allowing sin and false doctrine to reign in the church. So I want to add here that purity also gets lifted up in Scripture alongside these concerns for the general well-being of the church. And I'm not going to take time to go down that rabbit trail, but go through the New Testament and see for yourselves all of the warnings about false teaching and unrepentant sin and their dangers to exist within the church. So true unity does not dismiss purity. Unity does not mean everyone is just getting along by ignoring sin or false doctrine. This is very, very serious. It's serious because God's mission cannot be fulfilled through the church unless she is serious about unity and purity. A disregard for unity and purity within the church disrupts the church from accomplishing that for which God created her. Are you with me? Therefore, I think that this idea of unity and purity is important to wrestle with as we look at this text. Because if we're honest, this text can rub us the wrong way. This is the difficulty we have with this passage. What Paul is saying here is that we should submit, forego, limit the exercise of our personal freedom for the good of the body. That our freedom is just as much about restraining ourselves and denying ourselves as it is indulging ourselves in that which is lawful. Now, maybe that doesn't rub you the wrong way. But I will confess I'm a little uneasy with it. I confess that there is some tension I feel as I read this passage in terms of my sensibilities as an American who values freedom and who has been deeply influenced by a culture of individualism. The immediate thought that comes to my sinful mind when I read this text is, 
Why should I stop doing something that's lawful simply because someone has a wrong-headed view about it and they've got a problem with it? It isn't my problem. It's their problem. They should get over it. I want to suggest here that if this is the sort of attitude with which we approach this text, we need to repent. It's prideful. It's self-serving. It is unloving. It is divisive. And beloved, this is a point at which our every thought needs to be taken captive to obey Christ. Every thought needs to be taken captive to obey Christ as we move here from this preceding argument which concerns attitudes we hold about one another, not despising or condemning one another, now to our actions concerning one another. There are certain attitudes which we must have if we are to welcome one another in love, and there are certain actions we must do if we are to welcome one another in love. And so what does Paul say about our actions? How do we walk in love in regard to one another? Well, for starters, Paul says that we shouldn't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, this is a real fun sentence in the Greek, which unfortunately gets lost in the translation. Twice here, Paul uses the verb to judge. Remember, in the preceding verses, Paul has been talking about the inappropriateness of judging one another, meaning placing ourselves on the judge's bench, placing the other in the dock and pronouncing judgment and passing sentence on them. The role of judge belongs to God alone. But now here what Paul says is this, let us cease from passing judgment on one another, but rather make this simple judgment to avoid putting a hindrance or snare in our brother's pass. I didn't need to break down the Greek for you to get where he's going with all this though, did I? It doesn't take a biblical scholar to see what Paul's main point is here, so let's cut, cut to the quick. Is satisfying your stomach really worth causing pain to your brother or sister in Christ? If we have determined that our freedom to eat anything we wish exceeds our responsibility to love our brothers and sisters, then the church has a problem. We are, as Paul says here, no longer walking in love. Now, commentators get all in tangles on Paul's next statement. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And here's the problem, if you don't already sense it or see it. There are several words in the Greek which get translated into the English as destroy, each carrying different connotations. The word Paul uses for destroy here is almost exclusively used in the New Testament in the sense of final judgment in eternal punishment. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. They were all eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The very meaning of destroy you perhaps hoped wasn't being used is being used. But how can we 
condemn someone to hell by what we're eating. We can't. Paul isn't contradicting the perseverance of the saints he's already described earlier in Romans. So here's what's going on. Here is Paul's point, I believe. We can disregard the other's faith. We can ignore their struggles. We can ride roughshod over their convictions as though they weren't one for whom Christ died. We can despise the blood Jesus has shed for fellow believers. We can essentially treat others as though they are not counted among the redeemed. And instead of building them up in faith, they are diminished, disregarded, dismissed. What Paul is saying is that you can take something that God intended as a blessing to you, namely here the freedom to eat anything you choose, and you can rub it in the face of someone who struggles with the morality of breaking the dietary law, either by causing offense to them by seeing you doing something they consider immoral or perhaps even browbeating them to act in a way that violates their conscience out of a fear of rejection in the community. And as Paul has established in verse 14, the intrinsic value of the food being clean or unclean is determined not in the food itself, but in how it's approached. If it's eaten in a manner that goes against one's conscience, If one feels as though partaking of the food is prohibited by God and therefore violates a divine norm, then it is being received not in faith. It isn't that Paul is implying that the conscience is infallible, but rather that the individual would be eating in a way that separates this particular aspect of life since it would be viewed by him as displeasing to the Lord from the rest of his life, which is lived to the honor and glory and pleasure of God. This is why Paul will later say that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This seems really harsh and extreme, but do you see how all of our actions are either done in faith, being done in a good conscience and performed to give glory to God, or our actions are done apart from God? And any action done apart from God is sin. This goes right back to what Paul is saying about Abraham in Romans 4. Abraham acted in faith. He trusted in God's promises and did not doubt. And Paul says he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. We either act in sin, trusting ourselves and seeking glory for ourselves, or we act in faith, trusting in God and seeking to glorify Him. Paul is saying to us here in Romans 14, don't put your brother or sister for whom Christ died in a position that threatens to violate their conscience. Do you see this? Are you with me? Y'all still with me? Now, is this something to do? To one for whom Christ died, is it something that you do to someone you love? Would you flaunt behavior that your loved ones find unacceptable in front of them or worse, try to force them to do it too? It violates the principle of love. It twists something good into something evil. Love limits its own liberty out of respect for the other. Paul's instruction here to the strong is not to act in a way that is inconsistent with love. 
It's the strong's responsibility to relinquish their rights for the sake of loving the weak. Don't cause your brother or sister in the Lord to stumble. Don't put a roadblock in the way of them being built up in the Lord. For, as Paul continues, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is a place where it's helpful to understand the nuances of what Paul is saying. Paul has used the word for destroy, which is typically only applied in the context of the eternal realm. He's now using language about God's kingdom, which Paul rarely uses, especially outside the context of the eternal realm. And I love what he's doing here. Just as you shouldn't, in the present tense, treat your fellow brother or sister in the faith as though Christ has not bought them with his precious blood to save them from eternal condemnation, Paul is now implying that these aspects of God's kingdom, righteousness and peace and joy, which will come to their fullness at the end of all days, should be seen right now, in the here and now, in the present through the church. They should be demonstrated in how we love and care for one another. The unity is essential to this demonstration of God's kingdom. Righteousness and peace and joy get manifested in the here and now through our right relationships with one another. People should be able to look at us and get a glimpse of God's eternal kingdom. This is what Jesus was praying for in John 17. We should live in the present moment in light of the eternal reality. And you know what? God's kingdom isn't about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. If you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, then these are the things that you should be seeking to demonstrate. You aren't a slave to your stomach. Don't let something as trivial as eating or drinking bring the good news of salvation into disrepute. Serve Christ. Submit yourself to him in his kingdom. Forget about serving your stomach and instead serve Christ. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It does not build up God's kingdom to disregard each other's convictions, to dismiss each other's weaknesses and faith. This is what Paul's saying. And here is my absolute favorite verse in the whole passage. It's so poignant. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. The word in the Greek here for destroy is a different word than used in verse 15. The word here means to tear down or throw down, particularly in relation to buildings. Y'all see where this is going? The word... This is a word that people use to mock what Jesus had said about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days. They use this word because they were assuming he was referring to tearing down a building. Anyhow, this is the exact opposite of the mutual upbuilding encouraged in the previous verse. This is tearing down. Build up the house of God. Don't tear it down. So again, Paul is saying, don't start knocking the house down over something so trivial. Don't fracture the church, the blood-bought, spirit-wrought community of believers that God has created for his glory in order to satisfy your stomach. It sounds so ridiculous when it's put that way. Would you really, for a good juicy steak or a good glass of wine or whatever it is that makes your mouth water, wreck God's work? 
wreck the very thing that Jesus died to create? Would you do that? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And this is, by the way, said in the context of Paul addressing divisions in the church. Do you, plural, not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural? Now listen, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy in you, are that temple. Do you feel the gravity of this? Paul uses a different Greek word here for destroy that's actually different than either of the words he used in Romans 14. This word in Romans 3 carries a connotation of corrupting. Don't corrupt the church. Don't be the one to insert a virus into the body. Don't be the cause of a crack in the wall of that which God has built. Don't cause disunity in the church. This is a serious offense. And this is where we get to the heart of the matter. As Thomas Schreiner states, it is difficult to actually get to an exact parallel in the modern American church based on the context of Romans 14, abstinence from alcoholic beverages might immediately come to mind. But even this is not rooted, as Schreiner points out, in ritual considerations as this issue in the Roman church was. Regardless of this, however, there continue to be differences in opinion over non-essential issues in the church today. Think about the silly non-essential things that can, that can and do cause division in the church. The places in which we decide it's a good idea to pick up a sledgehammer and begin to smash the walls of the church that God has shed the blood of his only son to build. So regardless of the context, the question is, here's the question. Are we dedicated to the advancement of God's kingdom? Are we concerned first and foremost about God's kingdom in his glory? Or are you focused on the kingdom of self? Are you dedicated to advancing your own personal agenda? Are you committed to winning a trivial argument between a fellow brother or sister in faith? This is it. Which kingdom are you serving? Which kingdom are you advancing? Which kingdom are you seeking to bring glory? Paul is going to make explicit in the next chapter that the unity of the Jews and Gentiles, that the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles into one body, the church, is vital to the revelation that God is accomplishing his salvific purposes. God is doing what he said he was going to do. Such a silly issue over eating and drinking and observances of holy days should not be threatening to undo that demonstration of God working out his purposes. But how about us? How about us? This text presents us with a strong exhortation to relate to one another in a loving way, giving thought and care to others in terms of their background and their particular scruples and striving for the unity of the church and the glory of Christ as our ultimate goal. Romans 14 encourages us to practice self-denial in the church. This does not mean that we aren't free to maintain the convictions of our faith in the privacy of our home or with believers of like convictions. Paul says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. It does mean, though, that we should be careful how we relate to one another. 
That we should be careful to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. That our focus should be on righteousness and peace and joy in the faith community. And so I pray that we would do that. I pray that God would protect us from anything that would seek to divide us or undo us. But I pray that we would also make a concerted effort to maintain unity as well. I pray that we would be equipped by the Holy Spirit to be able to face every challenge that faces us in the days and weeks and months ahead and that we would be a light on a hill which provides a demonstration to the world what God's kingdom looks like. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you did not leave us to our own devices. But Lord, you have come and you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have brought us into your marvelous kingdom. Lord, help us to live as citizens of that kingdom. Help us to be focused on your glory Help us to love one another earnestly and care for one another. To look to each other's interests above our own. Would you do this in the power of your spirit? For we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed.